Hello, I'm Karen Iwata with Emith Worldwide, and I am delighted to welcome you to another Emith Your Business podcast. I am very excited to welcome back our friend, entrepreneur, and author John Warlow, who's just come out with an updated version of his incredible handbook on how to sell your business called Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. Now, John is a seasoned author, a speaker, consultant, and serial entrepreneur, and as such, he is an expert in starting businesses and then selling them successfully, which, by the way, he's done four times. In this version of the book, John not only walks you through the eight critical steps to prepare your business for sale, but he's added a great implementation plan. Um, some wonderful tips on how to make this work along the way. Now, Built to Sell explains why business owners can, um, or how they can actually pull themselves out of the day-to-day dealings and focus on creating a valuable, sellable company. And he really has stricken a chord with readers around the world, such that Inc. Magazine has named it one of its favorite books of 2010. Right now, he's come out with this new revised version that's available to you. And in addition to the great story, the tips, the implementation plan, he's also included his own war stories from starting and exiting those four companies. So, John, welcome back. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks, Karen. Good, good. I love the new features of this book. But before we dive into uh, those, I'm, I'm just wondering, what inspired you to write the book Built to Sell in the first place? Yeah, you know, I was in one of those classic, I think, smaller businesses where um, it was so heavily dependent on me. We were in a research company. I I owned a research company, and and I started off, I think I had $150,000 in sales the first year. I think we got to $300,000 the next year and $750,000 in sales the next year. And we were on this great trajectory of growth and all of a sudden, we hit $3.3 million in revenue and got stuck. And literally, I don't know what it was about $3.3 million in revenue, but we just simply hit a plateau beyond which we could not go. And for three consecutive years, that's as, as, as large as I could get the business. And it was incredibly frustrating for me because you know I wanted to grow this business and we were just stuck. And what I realized, I think, in retrospect – and after just kind of thinking about it and doing some reading, obviously I read the E-Myth and a lot of the other books out there, I realized that I'd reached a sort of ceiling uh, of control where because I needed to control everything, um, I couldn't punch beyond that revenue growth because everything was still being kind of put through my office and my desk. And so beyond you know, the 24 hours in the day, I just couldn't get and scale the business any further. And so um, – you know. I, I spent a lot of time kind of re- revisiting the business model, thinking about what I could do, and I made some changes to the business, um, making it less dependent on me personally, and that's really when we started to grow and scale up. I was able to hire salespeople and really scale up beyond that point, and it's really the, the, the lessons that, that I gleaned from that period of kind of being stalled that, that I tried to kind of uh, talk about um, in the book, Build to Sell. Well, in, in the book... You um, uh, go through the the eight um, fundamental and critical steps to prepare your business for sale. And one of the things, of course, that I love about the book and the way that you write is that you've told this in the form of a story. So it's very relatable and easily absorbed. 
Uh, can you kind of give us the high points of what the process is to build your business so that you can ultimately sell it or at least have the option to um, play whatever role in it you want to have? Yeah, by all means. So essentially, the essence of a built-to-sell company is that it's not dependent on any one person. It's not dependent on you, the owner. And the reason I think businesses, often smaller businesses, get dependent on the owner is because we offer way too many different products and services. And because we're the subject matter expert, to use another e-myth term, the business becomes so dependent on us because there is um, we can't hire people to do the work because we're, we're stretching ourselves too thin doing many, many different things. As a result, the first step in the process of making your company more independent of you personally is to narrow down what you sell to just a few things that meet three criteria. They've got to be teachable, valuable, and repeatable. Teachable so you can get other people to do the work. Valuable so you're not commoditized, responding to RFPs and so forth. Uh, but also repeatable. And I'd emphasize that of the three criteria, repeatable is probably the single biggest factor. Uh, what, I'm, what I mean by that is that customers have to repurchase again and again and again. Think about um, you know, uh, a subscription to a magazine or a wine club membership where every year you, know, you re-up that subscription. And that becomes the long tail of revenue that you need to really create um, a business that's independent um, independent of you. That's really the, the essence and the most important things you can do to kind of set your business up so that it's less dependent on any one person. All right. So given that, given that that's, that's sort of the, the basis of what the idea behind the book is, and it certainly addresses probably the, the primary frustration that business owners uh, face. Once they've got, as you say, you know, they've got some revenues going, they're still trying to grow it, they hit that plateau. Um, You've been out talking to people about the book. You've been getting a lot of feedback. In terms of the tips, in terms of the implementation plan, and certainly your war stories, what seems to really be hitting a chord with your readers? Yeah, I mean, I think the parable book format, just to begin with, is one that people, it, it, it has a, a binary relationship for people. Some people, they love them. Um, I know the E-Myth was a, was a parable. There's lots of examples of, of parables out there. The Go-Giver is another popular one right now. Uh, other people don't. Other people would rather kind of, uh, people just explain in, in sort of very pragmatic uh, ways what to do. And so that's, that was really what inspired the implementation guide, the second edition of the book, which was really to keep the parable, but also say, okay, um, you know, here's point blank sort of what I would recommend you do, and if you want to make this business more more sellable. The first thing I think people uh, that resonates with people is this idea of, of selling less less things to more people, um, and and I think it becomes as a bit of a relief for people because. Um, you know, they realize intuitively that they're way out of their depth and their employees are way out of their depth doing too many things. I often use the example of Apple, uh, the computer company. And, and when you actually think about it, they fall into this category of, in particular in the Apple store, of selling fewer things to more people. So with Apple, they have one basic operating system. And if you use a, a, you know, a MacBook or an iPhone, um, uh, you know, an iPad, the basic interface you're looking at really is very similar from one product to the next. It means that they're able to train Apple Store employees on how to learn and basically solve 90% of the problems that anyone would – or the questions anyone would have coming into an Apple Store. 
And so the experience that an Apple Store customer gets is very, very good compared to that of, say, you're going into a Best Buy or a Staples store where the poor guy behind the counter, you know, whose, whose job it is to serve those customers, they have to know 50 different technology platforms from lots of different technology vendors. It's very, very difficult to train those people. So this idea of selling less stuff to more people really resonates. The other idea that I think um, I, people find both challenging but also um, intuitive and it makes sense, and it goes in with this idea of being, uh, you know, selling uh, you know, less things to more people, is the idea that to really be an attractive company from an acquisition standpoint, you've got to get rid of those one or two customers that make up a massive portion of your revenue. It's not, you know, it goes without saying a lot of businesses – um, have one or two really big customers. They're the elephants, right? And they make up 40, 50, 60% of your revenue. Um, that makes those businesses usually very profitable, makes those accounts exceptionally profitable, but it also makes the business unsellable because, of course, acquirers look at a business with, with such a high percentage of, of revenue coming from one customer and, and they walk away. And so this idea of picking one thing that you can be really great at um, and selling it to many, many people is, uh, is one that is both, I think, challenging, but also uh, makes the business so much more valuable in the marketplace. Now, when it comes to that, I mean, that, that can be, of course, an extremely scary decision to make. So how do you transition from the one or two uh, very large customers or clients over to and by the way, um, you mentioned in the in, in the book that you have to start stop you have to stop calling your customers clients. That there's you know there's a there's a real difference in terms of uh, creating an attractive company when you refer to customers as customers as opposed to clients. So I want to talk about that. But how do you transition from the one or two giant accounts that you might have over to um, several small ones? What what does that look like? It sounds very risky. In terms yeah, of cash flow. So sure. So, I mean, the, the first thing to really focus on is finding one thing that you do that meets the three criteria, teachable, valuable, repeatable. It's going to take some time and iteration. What I'd recommend people do is take their customer list, rank order them from most valuable customer to least valuable customer. Let's say you have 200 customers. A lot of times, you know, as business owners, we're inclined to test our best ideas with our best clients because they'll give us a favorable audience. They'll give us time on their calendar and they'll, they'll, they'll you know, let us come and pitch them because they feel good about us. Don't do that. Take the 200th most valuable customer that you have, in other words, your least valuable customer on your rank order list, and go pitch them the idea that you've got that meets those three criteria, teachable, valuable, repeatable. Hone your, your pitch because you know, the first 10 pitches are going to be horrible. And really, you want to get those out of the way because you're going to get some reaction. You're going to iterate. You're going to massage the offering a little bit until you get to a point where you're ready to really go prime time with the offer to your most valuable customers. That's one uh, thing that I, that I would do. In, in my case, I categorized our customers when I wanted to make this shift in our research business. I made uh, categorized our customers in A, B, and C customers. A's were the, you know, the top of the top, great clients. B's, middle of the road. C's didn't know who we were really other than sort of some basic interaction. Interestingly, I thought our packaged product was going to work best with our A customers, the ones who love this the most already. 
In fact, it did not sell as well as we'd hoped with the A's because for them, they already had this really deep, rich relationship with us. And for us to then go and change it into a more packaged you know, solution, they thought of that as a step back. The offer initially sold best with our B customers. Um, I think we, you know, we charged $50,000 a year to be a subscriber to our research, and I think we got 17 subscribers that were all Bs. And that left us in a tough position because on one hand, we got this nice little chunk of revenue, $850,000 worth of subscribers in, in that B camp of customers, but it wasn't enough to really sustain the business. Um, so we had to find a way to get the A's to agree to, to the new model. And the first time I tried, it didn't work, but the second time – I forced them into a decision. I said, in fact, it wasn't just me. It was all of our account uh, and salespeople. We're not going to do business with you in the old customized way. You've got to come to this new uh, solution. It wasn't really until we gave them the, you know, the, the, the ultimatum that they realized we were serious and the, and the B's, uh, excuse me, the A's, you know, moved with us to the new model. So that's the second tip is, is I don't think you can get a scalable, offer like the one I'm describing off the ground until you uh, move from kind of running the businesses in parallel to being um, kind of committed to the new model. Mm-hmm. So that takes um, a certain level of vision. In other words, really defining what it is that you're going to uh, work towards in, t- in terms of what this model is going to be. Then it requires testing to see if the, the, the model's going to work. And then finally, you start working with the transition by essentially giving your current two or one or two big clients an ultimatum? You do, and that sounds, again, scary, and it's not something that I would do out of the gate. Again, you're, you're, you're pitching your, your, your C clients first, you're honing your skills, mm-hmm. you're moving up your list, and ultimately, you do go to your best customers because, again, I'd encourage people listening to to remember that you know as a business owner I think you have two choices you you can you can manage your business for profitability this year or you can manage for for most valuable business that you can create mm-hmm. and those sound like though they're the same thing but they're actually different because if you have one or two enormously profitable customers and you spend all your time serving those customers you'll have a very profitable business but it won't be a valuable business. It'll spit out lots of cash each year, which may be your goal, and that's okay if it is. But if you ever want to leave that business, um, install a manager, sell it one day, if you've got two elephants driving 60% of your revenue, it's not a sellable company. Mm -hmm. And so it it ultimately does come down to the idea that you do need to have the the tough conversation with those A A, A customers saying, We're gonna we're doing business in a new way, and and we want you to come to this to this new way. Um, again, if you're selling more things to uh, less things to more people, you're gonna decrease the, the the value of those customers just by the nature of you're selling more things. You've got more customers on your list, um, so you're gonna you know there's there's gonna be some uh, dilution of those two elephants on your list already. But ultimately, you will have to have the tough conversation, in my opinion. Well, and it sounds like, you know, the other thing that's sort of underneath all of this is that once you decide that you're going to build a company to sell it, your commitment has to be unwavering. I mean, that it's your commitment and your passion for what it is that you're going to create in the future that's going to help you mitigate those, you know, kind of scary, uncomfortable waters as you make the transition. And I couldn't agree more. 
And I think the toughest constituency is going to be your employees. I think customers are actually a lot easier to convince to go to a more you know, systematized way of doing business with us. Because I think as customers, when you buy from a company, it gives you enormous confidence when they have a system, they have a process. There's you know, step one, step two, step three. Customers love that because they look you, you as a supplier look like a button-down business, and, you, and, and it just instills a great deal of confidence. Employees, on the other hand, look to the systems and oftentimes, especially if they're creative in any way, kind of roll their eyes and, and, and get and you know may, they feel like they're being made to feel like they're working on an assembly line. Mm-hmm. And for me, and I think for a lot of people that you know read the first book, a lot of the questions I get are around how do you kind of get employees to do what um, what you're suggesting because they're the tough audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, I think you have to be very clear with, with employees that you're not going to do business in the old way, that you are moving to a more systematized, more process-oriented business. And I think you will lose some employees. In our case, over you know, a two-year period of making this transition, we probably lost 40% of our staff in, wow. in that transition. It was a really you know, tumultuous time. But again, go back. Why are you doing this? It's, you know, uh, very few businesses actually get to the point of being sellable. And so it is a very, very difficult thing to, to transition a business. But, um, but I, I think it's important to, to realize that you will lose some staff. Mm-hmm. When you go to replace those staff, my suggestion is to avoid people that come from a professional services background. I'm talking about people who work at ad agencies, graphic design studios, consulting companies, because their mindset in, in, at least in my experience, is going to be consultative. They come from the world where you, know, you listen to a customer, you probe for needs, and you come back with a custom solution. And in my experience, people, it's very difficult to get those people to change the way they think to being more process-oriented, thinking of you know, packaging up a product as a business. And so as you replace the ones you're going to lose and, and come to loggerheads with those people who want more creativity in their roles, um, you know, you will, uh, you will find that you'll, I think you'll find better success with people who've worked in product companies. Um, they've had the challenge of figuring out how to market, you know, products to people without having to change them each time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, that's a strong message, but I think it's one people need to hear if they want to make some of these changes. Well, and I can hear, uh, folks who have professional services companies saying, well, wait a minute, <laughs> That that's you know that's that's how we've gotten the you know achieved the success that we've achieved. So if we are a professional services company and the way that we um, sell our products and services is through that consultative method, you're saying that you need to just switch that completely because you 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 had a service based business, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to sort of productize. The service is what you're saying, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And in my experience, um, salespeople, I was never able to get salespeople to really sell our professional services business uh, successfully. We had sporadic uh, successes from here and there, but, but a lot of the sales when we were doing custom consulting and customizing research and so forth came down to me being involved. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't put a number on it, but it might have been 40, 50, 60% of our revenue had I touched on some level in terms of the sales process. And again, not a sustainable model, re- reached that point where I just couldn't kind of scale beyond it. 
in retrospect, what I think I the, the problem I had was that we had salespeople who just didn't have the depth of experience in what we did to dance and and kind of uh, listen to customers and on the spot come up with solutions because they weren't you know ten year deep into what we did. They were salespeople by profession, not necessarily uh, steeped in what we did. When we changed and came up with a packaged offering that didn't change from one customer to the next, that a, that a salesperson could really, you know, uh, rehearse, that's when we started to sell. And so I would challenge you a little bit, Karen. I think in when you say that, you know, what if you have a professional services company and and and, and the staff are, you know, are all in, you know, in the habit of selling professional services? My guess is that the majority of the services businesses the owner is still involved in doing a lot of the selling. They may have people opening the doors, but the owner's still involved in doing a lot of the selling. Interesting. So, so that brings me to, to my question that I um, uh, touched on a little bit earlier, and, and it's uh, tip number 16. I, f- I found this really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that this would make a difference, so I'd like you to um, talk a little bit about it, and that is if you want to be a sellable product-oriented business. You need to use the language of one. So change words like clients to customers and firm to business. Rid your website and customer-facing communications of any references that reveal you used to be a generic service business. Yeah, so again, from the standpoint of building a sellable company, from uh, and, and that may not be the you know the the people who are listening to this who want a sellable business, whether they want to sell today or in 10 years, um, service businesses are very hard to sell because, again, not because they're necessarily services businesses, but because services businesses tend to be very dependent on the owner. And so what I think if you make some of these really difficult changes like building out – you know calling your product list or service list down to one thing, packaging it like a product, even though if it is a service-oriented offering, um, developing the steps and so forth. The last thing you want to do is then use the, the lexicon of a service business because acquirers looking at businesses to acquire, when they see a service business that looks and smells like a service business, they put on their acquisition of a service business hat. And the way they acquire service businesses is they buy them on an earnout. They pay very little money up front, if at all, and they say, yeah, we'd like you to be, you know, we'd like to buy your company, gets the owner's attention very quickly. But when they actually reveal their terms and conditions, they say, well, we're not actually going to pay you anything up front. We're going to pay you a percentage of what you bring into our new business, and we're going to you know, integrate with all these different divisions, and we're going to have lots and lots of success together. Wouldn't you like to be a division of our company? Because look at how many customers we have, and wouldn't that be a great way to, to build your business? It's the classic earnout, and what you're doing is really swapping your job as the owner and oftentimes 100% shareholder of a service business to being an employee in a company you don't really control anymore. And so what you really want to do, I think, is avoid um, looking and smelling like a service business. You really want to productize to the extent that you can. And again, that is a lot of hard things that you need to do, i.e. calling your list of teachable, valuable people, et cetera. But it's also some subtle things and a lot of the packaging around your company. And again, you, you brought them up in the beginning, Karen, but, but it's things like stop calling your clients clients. Uh, product businesses have customers. Service businesses have clients. So call them customers. 
uh, you know, professional services businesses have engagements, but product companies have contracts. These are, you know, very subtle shifts that I think telegraph to an acquirer and to the, to the universe at large that you're a product-based business, not a squishy owner-dependent service business. Mm-hmm. So, so, so to to wrap up, one of the things that I would love to to um, hear you address are some of the, the the qualities, the mindset that a business owner needs to adopt in order to take this on. Because as you've pointed out in our conversation today and in prior podcasts that we've done together. Uh, this, you know, this is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you know? mm. This takes commitment. It takes passion. But I'm wondering, you know, at some point as you were beginning, you know, to, to make this transition with the several businesses that you started and then uh, managed to sell, at what point were you able and how did you overcome the fear and get past, past what must have felt incredibly risky? Mm. I wish I had a good answer to this, and I, I think, unfortunately, like an alcoholic, you have to hit rock bottom. I think, I think something has to happen for you that you just throw your arms up in the air and say, I'm not prepared to go on like this anymore. I mean, I can remember for me, um, in, in the research company that we've, we've talked a little bit about, although you know, the plateau of revenue was – was the biggest issue in the room. It wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back. The straw that broke the camel's back was a, a cab ride home. I can remember I, I had spent the entire week on the road. Um, I hadn't seen my kids. Uh, you know, it was, it was something like, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And, and I, just, it, I just realized that I wasn't prepared to go on, you know, missing entire weeks of my life on the road. Uh, using this business model that was so flawed, this kind of traditional professional services business model. And I can remember that cab ride home saying, you know, I, I'm a youngish guy. I don't, you know, I don't need to um, do this for the next 30 years. Uh, there's got to be a better way. And I'd rather go get a job than, than, than run this company in this way. And so for me, that was a bit of a defining, you know, moment where I think I reached rock bottom saying, I'm not prepared to go on like this. And so I, th- I think we all probably have those seminal moments in our lives where, where you just go, wow, I, it's not worth <laughs> the hassle. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, the good news is once you make some of these changes, I think people listening will find that, uh, that, that life becomes so much better. Um, you know, part of you know, narrowing your product and service list down to one thing is your staff get really good at delivering. Um, part of you know really productizing your solution so that you've got step one, step two, step three is customers that get really good at understanding and, and their expectations get managed. So your customer complaints go down. Um, part of productizing your business is you can start charging more up front because again, we're used to buying products up front and services after the fact. So you can actually start to get more cash in the door for your business. The wine club that I mentioned earlier, for example, charges me $200 a year up front before I actually get a bottle of wine, meaning they've got a positive cash flow model. So you can think about, you make these changes as hard as they sound for a lot of people listening, 
But once you've gotten through, number one, you have a sellable business. So if you want to sell, you can. You can. But number two, if you don't want to sell, you've got an enormously um, successful business that's much less stressed to run. You've got a positive cash flow engine, so you've got money in the bank. Um, you've got customers who aren't complaining because they know what to expect. Um, you've got employees. You've got rid of the ones that want to customize and make all this you know, work for you. They're, they're ones that actually know what they're doing and are delivering against the, you know, the, the package solution. And so once you kind of get over the hump, the, the, the valley of death or the valley of doom, whatever you want to call it, I think that life on the other side gets way, way better. It's, it's worth the kind of investment, in my opinion. Well, so that's a perfect segue. So the rest of the story for our listeners is that you are actually speaking to me from France, where you have relocated. So tell us a little bit about of, about that. I think, you know, that's sort of the, the carrot <laughs> for a lot of people, you know, a new possibility. I, you know, could I really get my business to the point where I could uh, run it remotely or sell it, be free of it so I can live the life I want? So just tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and what's next for you. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we, we moved uh, here. I've got two young kids, four and six. So we moved here last year. Uh, we put them in a local uh, French school. Um, I'm a big, you know, I love triathlon. I'm not a big triathlete. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fat, slow triathlete, but I love triathlon. <laughs> uh, and so I get to train all year round because it's, uh, it's reasonably temperate climate here. And um, we're we're just here for a few years to 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 enjoy life and 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 give our kids an exposure to a different culture, different language, different you know different food, different everything. Um, and so I get to uh, I get to do uh, some work from here remotely. I do some writing and, and the book and speaking and stuff like that enables me to, to kind of keep my hand in stuff. But uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a really neat experience for our family. We're planning to stay here for three years. We're just coming up on our first year anniversary. And, um, and yeah, I think, you know, for, for me, part of wanting to, to, uh, to sell my last company was certainly, I did feel geographically hemmed in, you know, most of our customers were in North America. I spent a lot of time on the road, but always in North America. And, and I figured kind of life's too short and wanted to, to, uh, to have some exposure to, to some different cultures. I, uh, I actually, wrote a blog post that got a lot of sort of response and it, uh, called your life in 10 year chunks. And I think for a lot of people, uh, at least from my perspective, I'll speak firsthand for in this case, um, I'm starting to think of my life in these big 10 year chunks, because for me that, that feels right. I, it's enough time to get a business started, uh, you know, to get through those first ugly years where everything's going wrong, to get it sort of scaled up, to get a management team in place and just when it kind of feels a little bit tired and rote and, you know, same old, same old, um, you sell it and you move on to something else and get that, that kind of buzz of the new, new thing again. That's really, uh, for me, what I'm thinking of. And it gives you these sort of bumper periods after a 10-year slice. It gives you, you know, if, if things go well, two or three years uh, you know, quasi sabbatical to kind of reflect and do some new things and sort of recharge your battery and then go back at it for another 10 years. So again, I, uh, I'm, I will start another business, I'm sure. But right now I'm just enjoying um, kind of one of these bumper periods, having, uh, having had an intense sort of 10 year run uh, uh, for the last few businesses I've owned. Uh, it's fun to sort of take a, you know, a quasi sabbatical. So anyways, that's, that's what I'm doing. 
Well, I got to tell you, it's inspiring. It's absolutely inspiring. So thank you again for being with us today. Uh, enjoy your uh, your triathlete uh, <laughs> adventures. Remember I said fat and slow, right? <laughs> fat and slow. But if you do enough of them, you become skinny and fast, I'm sure. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> well, that brings... That brings us to uh, the end of another Emith Your Business podcast. Thanks again to John Warlow for joining the discussion today. Um, I just want to remind you that the name of the book, you must go out and get it. It is called Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. It is not only a great story and a great handbook, but the tips and the implementation plan are outstanding. And I personally enjoyed um, some of the the war stories, John, of your uh, your personal experience as well. In the back, uh, you've got a great list of uh, reading and resources for folks as well. So you can get that at builttosell.com, amazon.com, or your local bookstore as well. So thanks again for joining us today, John, and uh, we look forward to uh, inviting all of you back to our next Emit Your Business podcast. <music>